This episode is made possible by our generous patrons. To learn more, visit patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Welcome to the Ink to Film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke. And I'm James. And this week we discuss J.K. Rowling's 1997 fantasy novel, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. It's a big one, Harry Potter. We're finally getting to it. Uh, I know this is a big project for you, James. Uh, so I just wanted to get into like reasons for for why this is so important to you, and and why uh, maybe also why we've we've taken so long to get to it. We can touch on that a little bit. Yeah, this is one of those projects where uh, it's near and dear to my heart. But this story helped shape me as a person in a lot of ways. For for one reason, at least, it's the reason why I enjoy reading. Like, I wouldn't be the reader that I am without Harry Potter. It hit all the right boxes at all the right times in my life. I've re- I've read this series more than any other series. It's just like, it couldn't be more near and dear to my, to my heart. <laughs> and then just like, as, as I grew up, it became more and more popular and like more people, I was able to create connections and, and f- make friends with people just because we had shared, you know, knowledge of, of this this story and like had basically gone through these journeys together with these characters. And so, yeah, it's, it's a massive one. I think that's something I want to try and explore as we cover this. Um, I want to try and figure out <laughs> what it is about Harry Potter that makes it so foundational for people and what it is that, 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 that children or, or young people really like attached to and why it was so powerful in their lives Um, because your experience is not unique you know like that's something we reached out to our listeners and we got some people who responded about what it means to them and a lot of people said that they got it young that it was you know whether it was a gift or they found it or whatever you know in the library or whatever it was and how it just really built them as a you know it's essential it's a vital part to who they are like you said so um yeah i want to i want to try and figure out why that is so um, but yeah, why, you know, why, why do we take so long to get to it? So I'm not really sure. I think it had something to do with the massive popularity and, and like how widespread all of the coverage of Harry Potter has been. And I think that's it for me. I was hesitant to do it because there it's been done so much. I've kind of come around on that thinking um, because I, I've come to, to believe that we bring something unique and that our style of coverage and our you know, personal experience with it is going to be different. And so if people follow this podcast, they're going to be interested to know our take on this novel, regardless of the fact that there's a million other people out there who've covered it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's, that does kind of address something else about it. We're going to do it in our way, um, but what we can't do is cover everything that's been said about Harry Potter because we, we could have the, this podcast about Harry Potter for the rest of our lives and we'd never be able to do it. It's one of the most analyzed piece of work Um in all of literature, I, w- I would argue. It's a definitely one of the most wi- widely read. Um, and because of that, you have a million different takes, a million different angles. People have people have taken uh, all sorts of different lenses in which to view this text. Um, and, and that stuff's all fascinating to me, but 
uh, it's kind of it, the I think the enormity of it was kind of intimidating too, right? Like I wanted to figure mm-hmm. out how are we going to do it, and so I come back down to we're going to give our takes, right? Like our personal experience with it, and then what I, I can sort of uh, prize out of the text with my background in writing. And, and just kind of tackle it like it's any other project and try and pretend like there isn't this larger Pottermore, Potterverse going on in which we're a very, very small drop in a pond of, right? Yeah, and I do I, I do want to say that like this this is because I read this so many times, I would read it, you know, when, when I was first reading it, not many of them were out. I think like the first two were out when I was reading. And I would re- read through one, read through the other one, and then just restart and just continuously reread. So like the knowledge, the crazy knowledge that I had of this although I probably don't have all of it anymore. I do want to bring some of that to the table. And I think that there's a lot of things, uh, like this one's a little more simplified, but I think Mm -hmm. as we go, it gets a lot more complicated. But uh, something that I do want to ask is, is your history with it? Because I know that you're fairly new to it. You didn't catch it when you were younger. Yeah, so we should also say we are covering just the first book here. It's not going to be the entirety of the series. (laughs) Um, This is going to be the first book, and then we're going to follow it up with the first movie, and then we're going to move on for a little while, and then we will return to the Harry Potter universe at some point. But yeah, personally, I was the kind of kid who wanted to read above my age range all the time. Uh, that became like a weird goal of mine. I think it was tied to this, these like um, book club things in school where you would have to test, you'd have to test out of your age range in order to access like a higher level of book in like the age category. And I was obsessed with trying to read at a higher, higher um, level than I was. And I was always at the upper end of it until I think pretty early on, I basically unlocked like high school level books, right? Right, yeah. And so I was that... so into that idea. Um, and then I found Dragonlance was my sort of like fantasy, young fantasy thing I was obsessed with. And I, those, there's, once I got into that and like Forgotten Realms, there, there's, you know, a hundred of those novels. <laughs> so there's so many of them that you can read um, by all kinds of different authors. Um, but mainly it was Dragonlance through the uh, Chronicles series, uh, Margaret Wace and Tracy Hickman. But yeah, so I, got, I was really into that. And then around that time, Harry Potter came out. And I remember my younger brother, Ben, got really into it. And at that point, I had kind of gotten to, to that level where I was very, very into reading adult books or like at least older kid books. And and I remember thinking Harry Potter is this kid's novel. Like it's a little kid novel. It's not for me. Well, I mean, I guess we should also say that, like, you weren't, you were, like, at the upper end of that age range anyway. Right. Like, you would have been in your, almost in your teens, right? Yeah. Oh, no, I was. Because, so, so it came to America in, I believe, in 99. Right. Um, so I would have been 14. Yeah. So right. I was definitely at that age where I was trying to be like, I'm an adult now. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so, so Harry Potter wasn't cool. You know what I mean? Right. Like, that was a little kid book. And so yeah. I never really got – and then what I ended up doing is I did see the movies, and I've seen the movies along the way. Um, I think I missed the first few for a little while for that same reason, but then, like, it, it kind of became such a thing that it was like I couldn't avoid it. Um, and I did love fantasy. Um, and so I finally did watch the movies, uh, and and I liked them. Um, I just never – I never went and picked up the books. And uh, this novel I read about a year ago for the first time. And I read this one and the second one, or I guess it was over a year ago, because before we started the podcast, mm-hmm. um, I read the first one and the second one, and my plan was to go through and read them all. 
Um, but I stopped because we started the podcast and I said, well, wait a minute, I'm going to hold off because we might cover this. <laughs> so that's yeah. maybe another reason why we haven't covered it is because it was so fresh. I wanted to give it a little distance. But yeah, that's my weird, I guess other people might've had a similar experience. I'm sure that people had that experience because when I became, when I got that age, there was plenty of things that came around that were coming up that I was like, that's too childish for me. Cause like right. you say, you get to a certain point and you're like, well, uh, like I had the same thing where like, if you, if you read at a certain level, they would give you higher level books. And then yep. you felt like, I love that thing. Like it almost, it's kind of weird to look back at it now. It's but like a like, badge of honor. I read at this level. Yeah. But it's also a little weird that like, if some kid who doesn't necessarily read at that level wants to read a book at a high school level, why not let him? Like, it feels yeah. a little weird that they would be like, you can't read this until you're... It is weird. And honestly, I don't know. I wonder I wonder how many of those programs still exist and have they have they tweaked that at all? I would be I would be curious to know if there are any parents out there or, or kids out there who might know the answer to that. I'm sure there is some sort of like pedagogy behind that and, and a theory for why it works uh, the way that they want it to. I don't know. I'd be interested to know if that's been tweaked over time. Yeah. And speaking of teaching, something that was like pretty punk rock to me about about Harry Potter was the fact that it was getting banned all over the place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we, I definitely want to touch on that. Yeah. I mean, it, and it was that, that actually was something that made me want to read it because I remember it was uh, my library at school. I think they weren't allowed to carry it like they couldn't right. have it in the library. And I was like, and I read it and like, I remember reading it and then hearing that it was being banned. And I was like, what the fuck? I'm like, this is a great book. Yeah. You got to read it. And then like, it became like this thing that I was like telling all my friends to read and stuff. Yeah. It was uh, these groups saying that it was uh, trying to make witchcraft cool, which is actually Satan's dark art. Right. Well, it's like D&D and stuff, right? Like it's like every generation has something where it's like this is there where some a bunch of people want to die on a hill because they don't want their kids to read about three-headed dogs. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that also reminds me. So I want to get into the history. One of the things um, – so so this first novel I feel like is so iconic and so – you know, everyone who loves Harry Potter knows the plot so well. Um, we're going to We're going to talk about that stuff, but I don't want to spend – the entire episode on that. I do want to talk about J.K. Rowling and her the story of her publishing this novel and then also uh, the story of the novel itself, its publication, uh, people's reaction to it, that kind of thing. Yeah, I, I know a little bit of this, but I, I feel like I haven't heard it in a while. Oh, that's something else I should say is that although I have reread these novels like countless times, this is my first time rereading the first one in probably five or six years. So it was like it had been a while for me. So it was fun to fun to go back. Cool. Uh, we also have reached out to your listeners to get their houses because uh, I want to know. I want to know your house. Tell me your house because I'm kind of like I want to get a picture for our listeners like where they fall. And so far we've gotten a lot of Slytherin. Um, we've gotten a few Gryffindors. Uh, I think a Hufflepuff or two. Um, so, but not very many, honestly. But what I would like to do is get some more data points because I, I want to kind of tally it up. And then we have our houses that we're going to reveal, but I think we're going to save it for the sorting hat scene when we get to it because I think it'd be kind of fun to, to to touch on that. I have a lot, have a lot of house-related thoughts to talk about when we get to that because I feel like there's some things that need to be said, especially in the, the first few books sure. about different houses and stuff. Yeah, I agree. Okay, so uh, if you're ready, I think let's get into J.K. Rowling and the history of her writing this novel and its publication, because I think it's very fascinating. I wanted to ask you, because I was like, I was just thinking of it during this read. I'm like, how is this the one that blew up and was the big, because it feels like a lot of other novels, and it feels like she's really put every, put a lot of stuff together to make this mega success. You are, you are asking the literal billion dollar question. 
um, yeah. that publishing has been asking itself endlessly since this book took off because everyone wants this, right? Every every author wants this. Every publisher wants this, especially in, in YA, you know, fantasy, um, that the, the Harry Potter, Potter shadow is is long. You know, it is it is it is huge. I also think that it's like it, it, it happened at the perfect time. So I'm wondering if it's like it was based on time and it was like I don't think that anybody could could replicate this specific thing. I think something else will blow up like this. No, but you have seen you have seen like Hunger Games blow up, um, which is different, but you could argue similar in a lot of ways. So so people are looking for the next big one to blow up because there will be another one. There will be another yeah. one that hasn't been written yet in the next few years that will blow up, um, that will become the new generation's novel you know like uh, Mm -hmm. that that young adult that age where people are buying books and falling in love with them and forming really strong attachments that you just can't really do as an adult like you can do when you're that age yeah um so yeah that's what everybody wants and and a lot of ya authors um dream of that and a lot of Mm -hmm. ya publishers dream of you know publishing that novel so that's why i want to talk about how this book came to be and 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 her history so jk rowling's real name is joanne Rowling. Do you did you know that her name was Joanne? Yes. Yeah. So Joanne uh, took on the K um, to try to become JK, and uh, because the publisher wanted her to use a name that is more gender neutral to appeal to uh, male readers, in an attempt to appeal to male readers, um, which is pretty common in publishing. It does happen. I wonder if it's like a, also like a the fantasy send up type thing because it's like J R R Tolkien, C S Lewis, like yeah. It, is that kind of like a fantasy thing? It's a little bit of that, I think. But but honestly, I think more it is uh, a lot of women are encouraged to take initials to to kind of do that to make it seem like could be a man, could be a woman. I don't know. I'm gonna read it. A lot of people, yeah. a lot of people do that. Um, I I would like to think that's changing these days. Um, but honestly, I don't know. Um, but we're getting ahead of it a little bit. So I want to talk a little uh, about her life before before she published this. So uh, she grew up to parents that were uh, never went to college, and she grew up on government assistance. Her parents were married when they were young. Uh, her father was an aircraft engineer at Rolls-Royce, and her mother was a high school science technician. Um, and from a young age, she, she did grow up around books and reading and storytelling, and she was convinced that the only thing she ever wanted to do was write novels. Uh, both of her parents kind of treated it as a a phase and kind of like a weird thing. And they thought she'd grow out of it because it was never going to pay the bills, um, which is a very common story for writers. Um, and when I identified with at least a little bit, she said that she had a very tough time in her teenage years. Uh, she, she was very depressed and struggled in school at 15. Her mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis um, and she would struggle with it for the next 10 years before she succumbed to the disease, which was before she sold Harry Potter. I've heard that uh, like a lot of death that, that was around her ended up, she ended up putting a lot of herself into these books, as we I'm sure everyone knows. But uh, I've heard that like losing her mother was kind of the moment where she was like, death was going to become essential to these stories. Yeah, and that was at 25, which was uh, when she was still writing, when she was writing these, you know. But so she attended uh, the University of Exeter, studied French and classics, which her, you know, people have said that her classic knowledge was later later used to come up with the names for the spells, uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of Latin. 
after graduating, she did work for Amnesty International doing translations, which she found important. She would read hastily scribbled letters smuggled out of totalitarian regimes by men and women who were risking imprisonment to inform the outside world of what was happening to them. Um, but eventually she moved on from that job. Uh, she found that she was too disorganized for the career, um, even though she did think it was important. She said when she was in the, her office, all she would ever, all she ever liked about working in offices was that she could write stories when no one was looking. So she was constantly writing. That's cool. Um, and so uh, she has said that her, the initial idea for Harry Potter came when she was on a train that was delayed from Manchester to London's King Cross Station. And she came up with the idea for Harry Potter. She said she had the idea of a scrawny, little, black-haired, bespectacled boy that was becoming more and more of a wizard to her. Um, so really, that's all it was. It was, it, was a, it was a young boy who is a wizard. That's it. Seems like a pretty simple concept. And, and like you were touching on earlier, it's not necessarily the most original concept ever. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's definitely kind of the hero's journey you know what I mean? Like the idea of a, of a boy who's a secret wizard, it's it's a very uh, common trope in fantasy. I, and I think that where she shines is is like with how she can take like all of these different elements, like you talked about before, using her Latin to make the spells, using her like knowledge of, of classical literature to, to shape certain aspects of characters and things that show up. I think that she's able to like blend it into this really well thought out universe that just like it's just like it's so endearing where it's like everything you read you're like i want to see that i want to be there i wish this was happening to me no you're right and and i think uh i'm going to touch on that early later but i think mood and atmosphere is so important for these books but yeah so so what you were touching on earlier is that when she did finally start writing it her mother died um during that and it's sort of to cope with the pain she has said that she transferred her anguish onto harry and gave him this really dark, orphaned br- upbringing um, where there was a lot wrong in his life, and he was going through a lot of pain about losing his parents. Um, and then in 1993, uh, had a child named Jessica, um, and became so she became a mother. Um, and then by November of that same year, separated from the father, so she became a single mother. She said that she was as poor as you could be and not be homeless, essentially. She, she was living off of government programs, uh, supporting her child, and, and, and trying to write. Um, and she said that in that period of her life is some of the time she's actually the most proud of, looking back. Um, and she wants to, you know, she's, she's continued in her stardom to support those sort of programs and, and, and champion government welfare programs, essentially, right? Like, um, and, and she really believes in them and, and has fought for them. Um, and yeah, so she was she was this single parent with, with, with a child and, and felt like that was a huge stigma at the time for her that she had to overcome. Uh, and, and during that period, uh, she said that she seriously considered suicide. Uh, she was severely depressed and, and sought help for it and uh, actually spoke with a therapist and, and was able to work through it. Um, and then she also said that during that time, she used that experience with depression to describe the Dementors in, her, in, in, in Harry Potter. So they're sort of a manifestation of depression. Mm-hmm. So I want to touch on the fact what you were talking about a second ago with her championing like the welfare uh, programs and things like that. I've always had this J.K. Rowling to look at as this positive influence. 
And it's crazy because like throughout all this, like she helped shape me from these books. And then even now, like I go and I'll, I, I see her championing these things on, on Twitter or whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is, I'm always reading and she's always has great quotes. And she, it's just like, she seems like the like nicest human being just like has been through everything. And yet came out the other end of it, just like super successful writing this amazing book series and and then also you know not just like holing away in some house some super huge mansion somewhere she's like actively trying to help people so i don't know i just lo- i look up to her a lot as as an as an artist in general yeah and, and i think a lot of writers do um that's why I, I wanted to say a lot of this stuff is sort of like passed into myth and legend <laughs> um because so many people like it is the ultimate dream story you know, you can compare a lot of dream stories in, in publishing, then there has been a lot of huge success stories. But J.K. Rowling's is, is you know, it's the best one. <laughs> it's the biggest one. It's true rags to riches. Um, and, and through selling a story, through selling, you know, a novel. Like many other authors, she actually had to go through a lot of rejection. Um, she, so it was the third, I believe, uh, agent she queried before she got accepted um, and uh, his name is Christopher Little, and he was considered an obscure London literary agent. Uh, according to reports, I've seen the number at eight, but this thing I'm reading now says 12. So as many as eight or 12 publishers rejected it um, before she finally f- sold it to Bloomsbury, uh, which was a relatively young publishing company at the time, and it gave her an advance of 2,500 pounds. So not a lot uh, mm-hmm. of an advance for the first Harry Potter novel. Um, and that is, as I can attest, very common. That, that's what I've heard from everybody is that that first novel, you're a huge risk. And so they're just not going to give you a lot of money for it. But I'm sure that she made her money on the second book, right? Well, and she made she made money off the first book, no doubt, because um, that was just the advance. That's So it's advance against royalties. Okay. So it's um, you 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 earn that through royalties. So basically until you hit twenty five hundred pounds in her in her circumstance, she doesn't get any money beyond that advance. But once you hit that, you start earning royalties. Gotcha. Um, but this, the uh, the novel went on to be wildly popular. It sold uh, 300,000 copies in the UK in its first two years of publication. Uh, won multiple awards. Was mostly uh, a critical success. Um, or, uh, there was a few critics who famously didn't like certain things about it, didn't like the ending, which, you know, this is all... So one of the reasons I point this all out to is... There is potentially eleven publishers who rejected this, and 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 to a couple literary agents, and uh, that's one of the th- things that seems crazy about that that job is, um, and and I've talked to some professionals who do this sort of thing, and they all have stories, maybe not to this magnitude, but they all say they have stories about this sort of thing, about rejecting something that went on to become a bestseller, right, and sure, could have yeah. changed their lives. And, and I mean, can you imagine being one of those people and knowing that you rejected, you know, the highest selling franchise of all time? Uh, it's 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 insane. I just feel like you'd get a new profession. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't know, man. It's, it's crazy. It's one of those things where it's like it's how could you as much as I love the story, if you're in that if you're in that position and people are coming to you with a book every every week and you're reading, reading and reading all the time, oh, how could you possibly hit on everything? every week? How could you possibly hit on every single thing that's great? You know what I mean? It's it's like it's such a weird like crapshoot. Well, and you're predicting the future, and 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 you're trying to say what's going to hit and what's not going to hit. And to to outsiders, I think yeah, it looks obvious. Like of course, how can you not read the the 
plot description of Harry Potter and know that it's going to be a you know billion dollar success. But at its core, it, it, it's it's kind of trope filled, you know, coming of age hero's journey stuff that doesn't really jump off the page when I, when I read it. Um, there is a copy of her like initial synopsis that she sent out to um, publishers online you can find. Um, mm-hmm. uh, she used to write all of this stuff at longhand, by the way, um, because she you know didn't have a computer, I think, early on. Or maybe it was just her preference. I'm not really sure. But yeah, it was. Um, there is a lot of these like, uh, like even the chair in which she would write on at uh, this like ca- cafe um, ha- went sold at auction, like later for some huge amount of money. Um, it's sure, crazy. Yeah. It's like all been mythologized now, right? Yeah. So it did sell to the United States uh, a couple years after its publication uh, for a little over a hundred thousand American dollars, which was an unprecedented amount of money at the time for an unknown uh, young adult writer, which made a big deal, you know, made, 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 made a big change in her life at that time. That was the biggest amount of money she got from it. She also then sold, well, it's around the same time, she sold the rights to the, to the movie, the first two movies, to be developed um, and sold the second book. And each one was like an increasing amount of money. Um, it was reported that she got a seven-figure deal to adapt the books into the movies. So now all of a sudden she's a millionaire. And this is only a couple years after the novel came out. So it, it, it did happen quickly. And um, mm-hmm. she has said that that time in her life was also really, really wild and, and kind of um, stressful. And she had to, um, she also went and spoke with a therapist at the time to help her deal with that. And she's a big advocate for, for seeking therapy when, when you need it. And yeah, I mean, and, and now, now we, we all know and love uh, the Harry Potter universe. As of February 2018, her, the Harry Potter books have sold more than 500 million copies worldwide, making them the best-selling book series in history and have been translated into 80 languages. The last four books consecutively set records as the fastest-selling books in history, with the final installment selling roughly a mel- 11 million copies in the United States within 24 hours of its release. Oh, that's something else I guess we should talk about. I was at I was at like a bunch of the book releases at like Barnes <laughs> yeah. and Nobles. Yeah. yeah, I think I went to the book release for four, five, six, and seven. So I was all dressed up, ready for, ready to get my book fresh nice, out of dude. the box at midnight. What did you? What was your cosplay that you would go as? Would you go as Harry? Always Harry Potter. Always Harry Potter. Because <laughs> I mean, I have dark hair and I just identified so much, and it's yeah, awesome. So, yeah, that's the history of the publication, which I think is really interesting, and it's um, it it. I think she she was really smart to structure her deals the way she did to retain rights um, and, and, you know, predict success. That's something we talked about at Viable Paradise um, for writers is that we were told basically at every point along the way, you should always be asking yourself, what if the thing I wrote is wildly popular? Um, because a lot of writers have a lot of self-doubt and will say things like, eh, no one's ever going to adapt this into a movie. You know, th- th- like this, I- I'm lucky, I've got this publishing contract, but no one's ever going to like do that. You know what I mean? No one's ever going to make a theme park out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you have the foreth- foresight, you know what I mean? You can set yourself up for to not get screwed out of your IP. So uh, I- I- in that sense, I think her agent must have done a good job. Uh, yeah. you know, whether it was her agent or, or her or a combination of the two. Um, they they positioned her in a way in which she didn't lose her IP, 
which we're seeing does happen. Um, a brief aside, uh, it seems like the guy who wrote The Witcher um, basically gave away his video game rights for Peanuts and has seen next to nothing as far as direct compensation for the for the Witcher franchise. Well, it's being adapted into a show now for Netflix, yeah. so hopefully he sees some money for that. I don't think so. Really? Um, you said video app- games though. Appara- yeah. Apparently no, but I think I think the I think the TV series as well. I think all of the sort of media rights he he basically gave away for nothing. Oh, now, man. he's gotten an immense amount of uh publicity for it and he's probably sold plenty and plenty of books. But yeah, I mean, it's it just goes to show what can happen. Um, you know, people think of course the author must be making millions off of this, but unless it's just from pure publicity, sometimes that's not the case. Anyway, that's a, a brief aside. It's probably only interesting to other writers out there. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so we've arrived at at the at the book itself. Um, do you remember anything about reading this book for the first time? Man, um, it, this is so embedded in my in my. How brain. old would you have been first off? Um, so it came out. In, it came out in the U.S. in 1999. I, I think know, I was. How... Yeah, I would have been six or seven, and I read it like fairly soon after. That, like Soon I said, the, so so I read it when the second one was out. Oh, we should also, I don't know if we've noted the, noted this or not yet, but it was called The Philosopher's Stone, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone in England. And they changed it to The Sorcerer's Stone for American audiences because they were worried that um, American audiences wouldn't associate Philosopher's Stone with magic. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I was really young. And to, to read it for the first time, all that I remember is... Um, is just just loving it. I just devoured it, and I w- I wanted to be. I wanted my letter to come in the next few years. I was I was ready for my my Hogwarts invitation to show yeah. up. And well, uh, that that and that touches on I think something we sh- we can get to now that I think the premise, the conceit of a of a of a wizarding school, wasn't necessarily the first time this had been done, but it was done so effectively, and it was done in a way that was so approachable. And even as an adult reading these books, it makes me want to go back to school. Like I just like, and it's like I long for for like an idealized school that never really existed. Um, the closest I came to that was when I went to Seton Hill for my for my masters. Um, yeah, that's the thing yeah. about the Hogwarts is that it reminds me of college because American schools aren't aren't like you know prep school kind of thing where you go away to school usually. I mean there are plenty, yeah. but I didn't have that experience. So so yeah, it makes me think of college a little bit. Um, and and like you said, like there's this there's this this like you said it's like idealized like, oh my god, like I want to do homework and learn these things that I don't know and like further <laughs> yeah. myself. And then like when it when you get down to it and you're like, oh, I have a bunch of homework to do. It's like stressful and you gotta you gotta get it done. Well, and and they're learning magic, you know. Right. And it's funny because like clearly they think some of it's boring and stuff, but it, none of it is. It's all right. interesting, right? Like yeah. from potions to spells to his to history of wizards and like it's all interesting. And so, but it's like, yeah, yeah, it's a cool. You could, you like, could draw comparisons to chemistry and like all these sure. other things that we should find fascinating and be so enthralled by. And I think that's one of the one of the like lessons you can take away from it is 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 there is kind of a uh, like a joy about learning and and becoming you know growing into a wizard through your knowledge, um, which I you know I love that part of the story and I think a lot of people do. Yeah. All right. Are we ready to get into some plot here? Is that time? I am. I have one more thing to to tell you that I thought was funny. I was talking to Caitlin okay. about. Uh, so you talked about how Ben was super into it. Caitlin was huge into it too. Caitlin being your sister, so also Ben's sister. Um, so she talked about the first time that she read it. She was so young that she was reading because they kept talking about cloaks, 
cloaks mm-hmm. were a thing that you know it's very like magical and uh she she re- recounts <laughs> reading reading every time it said cloak as clock so she thought that all the wizards were running around with clocks <laughs> and and I was just like imagining this wor- flavor flav world with the clock everybody's got clocks <laughs> around their necks <laughs> So uh, I thought that was funny, uh, and that's specifically for the first, this first one here, and uh, I just yeah. thought that was hilarious. Well, there's a big that. deal about 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 clocks made early. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> everyone's wearing clocks. Yeah, now now I feel like I'm gonna say that as clocks forever. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Harry Potter has been living an ordinary life, constantly abused by his aunt and uncle Vernon and Petunia Dursley, and bullied by their son Dudley since the death of his parents 10 years prior. His life changes on his 11th birthday when he receives a letter of acceptance into Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry, delivered by a half-giant named Hagrid. Hagrid explains Harry's hidden past as the wizard son of James and Lily Potter and how they were murdered in the most evil, or by the most evil and dark wizard of all time, Lord, Lord Voldemort, or Voldemort, depending on if you... Isn't that how they pronounce it in the movie, Voldemort? It's Voldemort, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but in the book, it's Voldemort. At least the audiobook, that's how he pronounced it. And I think, I believe J.K. Rowling has come out and said that that's how she intended it to be pronounced as well. Oh, Voldemort. I didn't know that. I've always oh, said no, Voldemort. Oh, no, no. That's definitely yeah. true. Wow. So, yeah. Anyway, I, I'll, I'll probably switch between the two intermittently. <laughs> I'm just going to let everybody know I'm going to say Voldemort. <laughs> the strangest bit of the murder was how Voldemort was unable to kill him but instead had his own powers removed and blasted away, sparking Harry's immense fame among the magical community. Hagrid introduces Harry to the wizarding world, bringing him to places such as Diagon Alley and a hidden London street where Harry gets his owl Hedwig and various school supplies, and Gringotts Wizarding Bank, where he uncovers a fortune left to him by his parents in his vault. Okay, so I wanted to talk about how... I want to save most of the one-to-one comparisons for the book to the movie for the movie episode... Uh, so like saying like this is different than happened in the movie. I want to save that for the movie mostly, but I do want to talk about specifically how this book opens with with uh, Mr. Dursley and how it's like him slowly seeing these magical beings showing up, and then uh, before we get Dumbledore and McGonagall at at the front doorstep dropping Harry off. So like having that and having like wizards celebrating in the streets, and it's like the night that that Voldemort's been defeated. It's just like. I, I've always felt like this was a, this was the stronger like start to the story, so I just wanted to get your thoughts on that kind of stronger than the the movie. I wanted to, oh, right to the, the movie. just because the movie jumps straight. In. It's like a little more mysterious when it's they're on the you know Dumbledore shows up and he's putting right. out the lights. But I think it's interesting to to see like the Muggle world reacting to the Wizarding world before we see the Wizarding world right away. Well, there's a lot of storytelling theory I could talk about here, but um, one of them I would say that I think what's happening here is what you're reacting to is the beginning of the series arc. Uh, They set up a... There's sort of this um, ring theory that can describe the uh, circular nature of the stories of these novels. Um, And one of the, the largest ring is the ring of the series that it comprises, you know, book one to book seven. And that first chapter, that opening chapter is very tied to that. It's, it's the outside world. It's the, it's the headmasters. It's um, all of this background. The movie decided to focus on, I think the story of just that movie to begin. 
And so mm-hmm. Harry Potter's story begins with him in the cupboard. <laughs> and so they kind of pass that up for what you know for whatever yeah. reason. I understand why they did it to to streamline it. Yeah, well, sure. and they didn't know how well these movies were going to do. It was still right. a risk. Um, and they didn't know for sure there was going to be seven movies, right? Eight, yeah. Now, there is a lot you can say about Rowling's forethought and in, in, in being willing to construct it because she wrote a lot of these books at the same time and pl- and mapped out seven books from the beginning. I've heard that, yeah, I've heard that she knew where it, would, where it would end very early on. Yeah, so she was able to do that. Now, how how much she was into these sort of structuring theories, I don't know. I don't know if she's ever revealed that, but a lot of people have been able to 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 pick that out. Yeah, you were talking about the hero's journey, and like I think I think Joseph Campbell is like the the hero's journey guy. Like he yeah. was the one who. Okay, so do you think that this this story on this first book on its own is like a clear example of the hero's journey? Yes, through and through. Okay, and then I think you would it say is. you think you would say all of them are, or just for now you're saying? Because I was wondering, like, because it feels um, to me, and I'll get to this in a second. These the first few books I think have a certain tone to them because of it's like Harry figuring out the world that he's in and he's like this fish out of water and he um, so it's like he finds out about this weird guy Voldemort and then it comes back around to the fact that he has to fight Voldemort at the end and then in the second one it's like the Chamber of Secrets something's going on with the Chamber of Secrets and who's what's going on like it's you know what I mean they're almost like mysteries the first couple are like mysteries and then as it starts to go through it feels like a little I don't know it's like I I feel like you could probably still put that filter on it so at its at its core honestly it's a very broad thing and a lot of stories fit this mold for a reason and uh so it's also known as the monomyth essentially it's this a hero goes on an adventure and in a decisive crisis, wins a victory, and then comes home changed or transformed. Right. That's it at its basis, its core. Uh, it's that return home that I think really lands this solidly in Hero's Journey. Um, it's a transformation, there's a crisis, there's a victory, and then a return home changed. Um, and then you can say that every, because basically every novel, and correct me if I'm wrong, follows a year at Hogwarts, right? Uh- um, to a point. I don't know. That's another thing that I don't want to spoil anything if anybody hasn't read all of them. So okay. yeah, basically. I basically. would say basically, but there's... Okay. So, and because of that, I think it lends itself to this. I go to school. I do a bunch of crazy shit. I uh, face di- certain challenges. I come home changed. Right. Um, and I I being Harry Potter. <laughs> um, so each time... Each, so even though it's the same, even though each time he's going to the same place and doing these events it's still the same you know what i mean is he really going back as changed at the end of two as he was at the end of one i think so because he fa- he faces different challenges and he, and he changes in different ways and grows in different ways so we, i mean we're following a we're following the hero's journey in a sense that we're seeing harry evolve and grow into a to the wizard he was perhaps meant to be or perhaps you know was latent within within him or or, or not um and yeah so i think uh I don't know. I, I, honestly, it's kind of academic whether or not it truly is, and, and and is every book its own hero's journey. But um, I think I think it is a little bit at least, and it and it's kind of interesting to think about that cyclical nature of these books, because like I said, there's an overall cycle for the entire series, and then there is that individual book cycle too. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, you, the ring theory. I, I can get into this more as we cover the series, but it's, it's 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 interesting. Yeah, I've heard a lot about specifically the hero's journey and how it's like it's used as a template. And although it may be like this cliche thing that people do a lot now, 
it's res- it re- everyone responds so well to it. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. People, well, it's a it's, it's, it's the monomyth. It's the it's like one of the oldest stories. Right. It's uh, the Odyssey. You know. Right. Or like uh, what's it called? Gilgamesh. And yeah. uh, what's that story called? Beowulf. Um, Beowulf. Yeah. So my question is basically that is it is it that this is a popular way of writing a story or is it that it's an effective way of writing a story or do you think both? I I, it's both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think it's I think it's effective and because it's effective it's popular. Would be gotcha. my would be the way I would put it, I think. All right, well that's good for me. good enough for me. I'm I'm, I'm Yeah, sold. and I, and I think there is some like it's it, you know nowadays there's a little bit of people's like cynicism around it of like oh another hero's journey. Right. Um but it, it will always be a classic story structure. Yeah, you know, yeah. and well, there's and, people that swear by it. Some of the most successful yeah. people swear by it and still make the most unique that every book is the hero's journey. Yeah. Yeah. And they may still make the most unique stories with it. So, yeah. And and, and then people take it and they say, oh, I'm going to I'm going to do a play off of that. and I'm going to change certain elements of it and I'm going to try and, and and and, you know, but they're still using it as something to work off of. So right. it's 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 an essential human story, I think, and, and one that that is effective for that reason. Okay, so I have another structural question for you then about kind of this this story because we I feel like a lot of people are very very aware of the plot details and we can talk about some of those as well. But I wanted to know if you feel like this is also a portal fantasy because we've mm. talked about that before on the podcast because it's like he goes through platform nine and three quarters and then seemingly goes into another world. Yeah. But it's still kind of the same world and the magic doesn't only take place there. There's another kind of fantasy called liminal fantasy um, that is about the fa- like the magic kind of being like seeping into our world, mm-hmm. and so I would say this is a bit of both of those, um, because the portal he goes through a portal, but he also is still in our world, even though it seems like he's in another one. Um, and then when he returns, like the the it doesn't stay behind the portal, like right. it's 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 kind of around him all the time. Yeah. So it's kind of a bit of both. Yeah. But so I wanted to talk about a little bit about how this novel opens up with Harry being in an in an abusive situation. Um being locked in a cupboard for weeks at a time. Uh being being beaten by his parents, being bullied by his you know brother, I guess or cousin or whatever he is. Um Dudley and and it's re- it's really dark, and and we've talked about some of the reasons why Rowling wrote it that way. But I I think it's interesting because some of these subjects would be considered pretty taboo, and it wouldn't surprise me if some of the publishers who turned away from it might have for these reasons. And you know what's funny is that I feel like she walks a t- a, a line here where it's like they're clearly abusing him mentally, and they're they are potentially like there's some hitting going on from yeah. Dudley for sure, and like maybe some smacks around and things like that. But she doesn't ever go into full on like getting drunk and like beating him or anything like that. No, but I think he like, does like throw him at one point and like there's some there's some there's definitely some physicality for sure. And and it's awful. But I feel like that's that's where she she was able to keep it PG to where like kids can read it and realize that these are bad people. Yeah, and it, it still be dark enough to where you're like this is an awful situation for a child to be in. Right, and it's the um, classic. He's an orphan with a mysterious backstory. And uh, latent magical ability, and so these are all big tropes, and e- and were tropes at the time in which she wrote this novel. Um, now have become even stronger tropes, and even more you know omnipresent. But it is, I think. I mean, we've talked about. There's something effective about the way she does this, um, and 
Harry Potter. What do you think of Harry Potter the character? Um, because to me, he's a bit of that. Um, he's designed to be almost a Mary Sue type, you could argue. Right. Um, in that he is a he is there for you to insert yourself into a story, feel like you're a famous latent wizard who just isn't aware of his own magical abilities and the thrill of sort of discovering that. Um, but, it, but how, you know, like, is that character a good character? I mean, clearly money would say yes and, and popularity would say yes, but I don't know. It's an interesting question. So I would say that I agree with you um, for the first, for the first one, maybe, maybe the first two. And we start to see his personality develop a little more and like him be more of an individual and like making decisions that the reader, you know, putting themselves in those shoes might not make that decision. Right. But I definitely agree in this one. It's definitely like, well, what would I do now? I'm going to get my wand and I'm going to get my owl and I'm going to ride my broomstick and be the best. And like, yeah, I, like I, he's the best. He's the best uh, seeker ever seeker in a century. Like yeah, stuff, in a century. Yeah. But the, so the thing is, like, I responded well to that as a child, too, though. Sure. It's, so it's like that might be a selling point. And it's interesting because the Mary Sue thing has become such a like hot button criticism, or at least it was around the time of Star Wars coming out, because um, it reared its head again there. And and but a lot of the like most iconic characters are Mary Sues or Marty Stews. Marty Stew, I think, is the the uh, the other gendered version of it. Um, but it's the same idea. And and you can look at Luke Skywalker as one. Sure. Um, well, it's like does at, does the hero's journey lend itself to having Mary Sue's? I, I don't think it has to, but it often does. It's like these unknown, unknowing heroes, or on un, un, these heroes that didn't didn't necessarily want to be heroes, but wanted to go on an adventure and became yeah. unlikely heroes. Yeah. Well, and you can look at like Katniss Everdeen. You can look at a lot of these like YA heroes as being that way. Yeah. Um, and, and it's I just want to say it's become it's become kind of popular to shit on that trope. And, even though and it's fun and effective sometimes. Even though it's fun and effective. I mean, I mean a clear one we covered, uh, you know, uh, Wade Watts from Ready Player One is yeah. definitely that. Um, so there, there, it's it's all throughout popular uh, media. And, and uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I, I guess I, I'm kind of torn on it because I, I can understand some of the criticism of it, but I also feel like a lot of it is kind of, it's kind of sour grapes. Like it's kind of silly almost to, to try and say it's, it's a way to look at something people enjoy and, and say like, you shouldn't enjoy it. And here's why. And mm-hmm. I, I've never really liked that part of it. So to, uh, cause I want to talk about some of the lore here. I don't want to spoil anything from later books if possible, but I do want to okay. talk about the fact that abused wizards who didn't necessarily know that they had abilities when they were younger like people who were being suppressed in some way, um, sometimes became violent and, and dangerous. Uh, and it's a miracle that Harry doesn't turn into one. And I think later, so with the Fantastic Beasts film, uh, she gave a name to it. But there were examples of it before, like um, Dumbledore's sister. There's They're like dangerous because they have these abilities, but they're not developed. And something's happened to basically stunt that or just try to suppress it. And... Um, it's it's called Obscurus now in in okay. the Fantastic Beasts films, and it's it's this idea that like that that ability and that stuff inside of you will like latch on to your emotions or things that are going on, and specifically like abuse, it'll like lash out from people who are being abused. So it's like it's a miracle that that Harry didn't just explode and like hurt his his Dursley's family in some way. Um, yeah, 
I don't know. And I just think that it's very interesting because it's like maybe it's like the goodness within him him, or maybe it's the mother's love like we learn about at the end of this one. Maybe like there's something there. Um, There's so much that goes into this too, like prophecy and all this other stuff that starts to pop up in other books. It's the chosen one trope too, which is definitely strong here. I do like the way that she played with it though. When we get to that book, I like the way that she, she played with like the idea of like what you would think from a chosen one prophecy. Right. Harry leaves the Dursleys' home to catch the Hogwarts Express from King's Cross Railway Station's secret Hogwarts platform, platform nine and three quarters. On the train, he quickly befriends fellow first-year Ronald Weasley and Hermione Granger, whose snobbiness and affinity for spells initially causes the two boys to dislike her. There, Harry also makes an enemy of another first-year, Draco Malfoy, who shows prejudice against Ron for his family's financial difficulties. Arriving at Hogwarts, the first years are assigned by the Magical Sorting Hat to houses that best suit their personalities, the four houses being Gryffindor, Slytherin, Hufflepuff, and Ravenclaw. Harry hears from Ron about Slytherin's dark reputation, which is known to house the potential dark witches and wizards, and thus objects to being sorted into Slytherin, despite the hat claiming that Harry has potential to develop under that house. He winds up in Gryffindor with Ron and Hermione, while Draco is sorted into Slytherin like his whole family before him. So let's stop there, and 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 we can we can talk Sorting Hat. We can talk arriving at Hogwarts. Yeah. So first, first, let me just ask you uh, how you feel about Ron and Hermione as characters, especially early on, like the way that their their dynamic is. Uh, I mean, it's good. I mean, I like. I've always liked Hermione. Honestly, like of all the characters, she's the one I identified with the most. Yeah, I love Hermione. Um, I think as kind of like an over-achieving uh, student, I think I was often that, if not always that in my life. Uh, I often was kind of trying to be one of the top of the class. And and so I, I, I always like that. And then I, it always feels like she has to work at things harder than Harry, who just kind of comes by it naturally. And I've always felt, I feel that way about my own writing. Like I feel like I'm someone who has to work very hard at trying to write well, <laughs> whereas other people can seem to have some sort of natru- natural latent magic that they, they, they tap into. Now, whether or not that's true is very debatable. Um, but yeah, I, I, so I, I think I always identify with Hermione and, and, and liked her for that reason. Yeah. I, uh, I really like the way that like each character has like a distinct, like you said, like Harry's kind of latently, he has all of these things and Ron is supposed to be this person who has nothing and yet yeah. like has, but then, but then has the wizarding background and so, like, be, because of that, he has his own things that he's bringing to it. And Hermione being muggle-born is, like, yeah. basically, sh- like, pr- trying to prove herself. And she's working that much harder, like you were talking about. But I just love that that her in general, like, that know-it-all attitude. I feel like I have that sometimes. To an annoying extent sometimes for, for people around me, too. So it's, like, um, I hated the way that they treated her at, at certain points. But I also identified with it a little bit. But if we're being honest, like as a as a kid and growing up, I identified mostly with Harry. And it's also because I had like this like nonchalant attitude and stuff. And like I I feel like I've grown out of that a a decent amount. But it's just like like I felt I was very privileged, not not like in that sense of the word. I wasn't like live in a cupboard. I didn't live in a cupboard. I was very privileged in in comparison to Harry Potter. But um, in terms of just like things coming naturally and like not right. having to work very hard. I felt like I had a lot of that, uh, which brings us to the houses. If you uh, real quick, talk. I do also want to say I'm recording from my own Harry Potter cupboard right now. 
<laughs> still still there, uh, filled filled up with blankets and and all kinds of stuff. But uh, literally the the room under the stairs in my house. <laughs> and I can attest to the fact that it it looks like the exact size that the cover that we see in the film is. So it looks about the same size. <laughs> Very appropriate. All right, so houses. I I, I want to talk about these houses. You want to you want to go first? So first, let's talk a little bit about the sorting hat and the process. Um, it's interesting the the I can't not think of the Sarah Gailey uh sorting hat thing I sent you right. or, or had you read. They talk about the sorting hat and uh what's the character's name from Lord of the Rings? Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil and how they both are like these ancient characters who sing and know things about you and and are creepy and I so I when I when I was reading, and they know things about the world but they won't but they won't get in in like involved with the goings on of the world and so when I was reading up the song from the hat like I kept thinking of that and and I'll I'll put that in the show notes so people can check it out um it's it's really a fun read but yeah, yeah so this creepy hat gets, sits on your head and it knows all your thoughts and mm-hmm. and then it and then it then it assigns you into a house and I thought it was interesting how with Harry um it kind of wanted to put him in Slytherin and kind of was mm-hmm. like pushing him that direction. But Harry's wanting to be in Gryffindor seems to have been the thing that sort of um, made it so where the sorting hat said, okay, I'll put you in Gryffindor. And it's yeah. interesting because, um, which we're about to talk about, um, Pottermore and all this stuff, like they don't really ask you what house you want to be in. They just put you in it. Well, um, it to, to an extent, I feel like. So So a yeah. couple things to talk about with the sorting hat. It like later, it's a light spoiler, but um, we kind of find out that that it's kind of where you want to go it's if you want to be in a certain house you're probably going to end up in that house um and i think the houses are designed to be that way it's like the thing that you would identify with you'll probably be sorted into and i think that's the same thing with pottermore is if you know if you know what the attributes of each house is i think that it's you can test whichever way you want to but I'll, if you answer honestly with the questions and and like you actually feel the one the 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 way that you're answering, you'll be sorted into the house that you probably should be in. Um, yeah. With that being said, it's not. I don't think that Pottermore is the end all be all perfect way of knowing which house you're going to be in. Okay, so we're in we're into it now. We're into it now, buddy. Let's talk. Let's talk about it. Before that, let's talk about houses because I think two houses in particular get a super bad rap in this first book. Oh um, yeah, I agree. So and this is this is something that's like pretty controversial too. Um, so Slytherin being one of them, they're basically like from the first Clearly. book and from the first movie, they're just the evil house. They're the evil house. They're the villains. They're the, yeah. they're, everybody in there is kind of an asshole in the first book at yeah. least. Which is like, not fair terrible. because it's not, that's not what the house is supposed to be about. It's not supposed to be about being evil. It's about being cunning and, and being, um, driven and kind of doing whatever it takes to ambitious. succeed in your yeah, ambitions. doing what yeah. it takes. Yeah. Which uh, can sometimes mean cutting corners and stuff, but kind of to achieve a goal, like put a Slytherin on it and it's like they're going to get it done. Right. You know, and then the other, to, the other to get a bad rap, I think for a lot of the books actually, is Hufflepuff. Um, yeah. Because because everybody just thinks of Hufflepuff as like this forgotten house. Well, and I'm speaking I'm speaking um, in terms of like the, in, within the story um, because I do identify with some qualities of Hufflepuff, uh, but I think that it's a bummer that people just see Hufflepuff and they're like, oh, Hufflepuff, and they like write them off as like these people who, who don't have... Uh, ambition or they don't have courage or they don't have you know like the the yeah they're, intellect. it's almost um they're almost like comedic like considered right. kind of like goofy in the in, but the I problem know, with like that is that like they're like, almost <laughs> yeah but at the, the end of the day they're like um 
the most compassionate and like the people that you would want to be friends with. And right. like, uh, I, I don't know. I think that the, I just want to address the fact that like, and I do want to say that I, I think they're the most popular house these days, at least from what I've seen. Like people love Hufflepuff these days. Well, yeah, Hufflepuffs are just cool. Like it's just like that's just how it is. <laughs> I uh, I have some funny stories about houses and stuff, but let's. Now I would I would I would argue that Ravenclaw is also not done not not really done a lot of favors in this. I mean, I guess there's a certain amount of respect granted right. to them. Exactly, but they're like, oh, those are like intelligent, like because our main characters are all Gryffindor. And they're opposed to Slytherin. We get very little of Ravenclaw and very little of Hufflepuff, just in yeah. general. Like, I I almost wish one of them had been sorted into one of the other houses. I guess it wouldn't have made sense for the for the conceit of like wanting to succeed your for your house and be on the same team. Yeah. I think you'll be happy because as we go, we get more from other houses, which yeah, I, where I we figure. don't really get quite as much in the movies from other houses. Even like we get okay. a lot more as in as the books go on. So. Uh, that's something to keep an eye on. But let's let's talk about our houses. Let's do it. Who you want? Who wants to go first? You go first. There are a lot of tests you can take to get sorted, right? There's a lot of there's some tests that'll even like give you like a blend of like what your dominant house is and what your like minor house is and all this stuff. And for me, I've always tested Ravenclaw. The one that I took that was like a gave you your major house and then your minor house. It tested me as Ravenclaw with a minor in. Minor, uh, in in Gryffindor. Um, now Pottermore is the only test I've taken that put me into Gryffindor. Um, so I I feel I've always identified more as a Ravenclaw, um, but I recognize that like Gryffindor is probably my second house if I were to be in a different one. Um, so I don't know. I I guess it's it's funny because like whenever I log into Pottermore, like it says it's got all these like red and it's Gryffindor and all this stuff, but I never feel like that's appropriate for me. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's funny. So I I um, always identified Gryffindor. Always like every test that I've ever taken said Gryffindor. Um, I've took Pottermore. I I like made multiple accounts because I wanted to try to get a different Patronus. And every time I took the test, I came out Gryffindor. Um, it's always just been the one to me that like like was like I identified with in every way, but the, it's funny because like as I've grown, like I said, I I I've really really closely identified with Harry when I was growing up, and since since then I've like kind of started to see how I'm different than that in a lot of ways, and I think that um, if I was to have a number two house, I would want my number two house to be Ravenclaw, and I think that I have a lot of attributes of Ravenclaw, but my actual number two house is Hufflepuff. See, I, I, in the Hufflepuff is what I would think for you. Um, it's interesting. Have you taken that actual test that that does the like major minor thing? I think so. I think so. And yeah. I think I got. I think I got Gryffindor Hufflepuff. Hufflepuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool test. I. I, I don't. There's probably a, you know a million that have come out since then that. And and the thing I liked about those tests was that there was a lot more questions because my memory of taking the Pottermore test was that it was incredibly short for what mm-hmm. I thought I was going to get. It was like five or six questions and it was over and I was like, oh. And and I felt like I didn't really get a chance to like really round out any sort of like personality from those questions. Right. Um. So yeah, I and like, it's one of the things I wish they that there was an option to retake it. But anyway, um. So even though it says Gryffindor on my Pottermore, I believe I am I am Ravenclaw. So. 
Well, Team we would be happy to have you in Gryffindor <laughs> if you if you wanted to be, but it sounds like you don't want to be. I also feel like Gryffindor people love to like or 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 feel compelled to like apologize for it. I think because it's like the main house in the books. So yeah, a lot of I will people... say that they they get so much screen time and so much book time that people love to hate Gryffindor. I've been called a fuckboy because I was because I told somebody I was a Gryffindor, and I was like, okay, <laughs> I was like, thanks a lot. I was like, I don't know what that means, but thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's just one of those things where it's like, I don't know. I've always, even if it's like, I would say even if every, at every turn, I don't make the Gryffindor decision, which I feel like I do a lot of times, I strive to make the Gryffindor decision. So, okay. um, I don't know. It's kind of interesting, but it Fight is also funny right. because at the end of the day, I think I have like a personality that's more, that's more like, uh, just letting everything go with the flow. So how much do you know about, like, the Patronuses and the Wands and stuff? Because there is also all that, and, like, I really don't know what to make of most of it. To tell you the truth, I don't think But you're all into the lore, so. Yeah, to tell you the truth, I don't think... Are you saying in terms of the the story or on Pottermore? I'm I'm saying, like, what do you know about it as far as, like, if someone tells you, oh, yeah, my Patronus is this, are you going to be like, oh, well, that means that, like, do you, you, Uh, like, have more memorized? As far (laughs) as I know, the, the Patronus is somewhat, like, there may be certain attributes that, like, lean you towards certain things, but I think that it's, like, fairly, uh... Like I think that they they if you have like really rare answers or something maybe you would be more inclined to be like a lion or something like that. But my my patronus is a chestnut mare, which is just a I think oh, cool. is a pretty cool patronus, but not not anything I would have ever expected. Like I'd be like, oh, I want like a wolf or like something cool, something really. But uh, mine mine is a chestnut mare, which I I actually enjoy. Okay, and mine is a. Hummingbird, <laughs> dude, that's pretty that cool. Means. That's pretty <laughs> pretty legit. I think that's pretty cool. Um, At least it's a bird. Like you can that can fly around and stuff. Uh, and then as far as wands go, I just know like there there are certain ones when I'm re- when I was reading like certain certain cores will have different abil- different um, kind of strengths and weaknesses and stuff. Uh, oh, that's right. Yeah. And so so and different woods like like tell within the turn within the like the context of the of the books it tells you something about the characters yeah. like their wand All does. Right, so share 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 your wand with our listeners and then I'll share mine and then we'll move on from this fairly self-indulgent point here. But uh it's fun. I mean, when else when else do you get a chance to talk about this on a podcast? <laughs> yes. So my my wand is a laurel wood with a phoenix feather core, 13 inch and solid flexibility, which I think is awesome because Again, the phoenix, the phoenix feather is like very prominent within the story. It's like Harry and Voldemort have phoenix mm. feather cores, and um, they're ra- I think they're the rarest core. So that's something that I'm always like kind of proud of. Awesome. Uh, so I am Ashwood. So you were what Laurel Wood? You said Laurel Wood. Yeah. So what kind of wood is Laurel Wood? I don't know much about it. It is said that Laurel that a Laurel wand cannot perform a dishonorable act, although in the quest for glory a not uncommon goal for those best suited to these wands. I have known laurel wands perform powerful and sometimes lethal magic. Laurel wands are sometimes called fickle, but this is unfair. The laurel wand seems unable to tolerate laziness in a possessor, and it is in such conditions that it is most easily and willingly won away. Otherwise, it will cleave happily to its first match forever, and indeed has the unusual and engaging attribute of issuing a spontaneous lightning strike if any if another witch or wizard attempts to steal it. So, mine says, those witches and wizards best suited to ash wands are not, in my experience, lightly swayed from their beliefs or purposes. However, the brash or overconfident witch or wizard who often insists on trying wands of this prestigious wood will be disappointed by its effects. The ideal owner may be stubborn and will certainly be courageous, but never crass or arrogant. 
I feel like the wands, as far as the wands go, it's going to tell you something that you're like, I like that, and I feel like I can put that, like I can, I can match that up to myself. Yeah, it's like uh, astrology or something. <laughs> um, I also have the Phoenix Feather Core. Nice. We're gonna our so, our cores are gonna, whenever we attack each other in a duel, we're gonna we're gonna connect. Is that how it works? Not, I mean, not always. And I am hard flexibility, thirteen and three quarters in length. Nice. So there we go. That's our wands, which feels a little bit phallic for my liking, but <laughs> <laughs> that's um, our uh, yeah, especially like the length thing and like the length about and the, the flexibility. <laughs> yeah, I'll just uh, we'll move on from that. We've compared wands now, uh, but seriously, um, listeners, if you want to write in and let us know your like your yes. your house, your Patronus, your wand. Also, types. please, yeah, please also tell me why I'm a fuckboy for being a Gryffindor. <laughs> yeah, explain that. Uh, what do you what do you think? Is it bullshit that I'm not embracing my Gryffindor Pottermore thing, or, or or is it more like in line with the the Sorting Hat? You know, letting me choose my choose what I feel fits me more. Um, and other tests have told me that I am a uh, Ravenclaw. But let's move on. Uh, I'm going to finish out a little bit of plot here. As classes begin at Hogwarts, Harry discovers his innate talent for flying on broomsticks and is recruited into into his house Quidditch team as Seeker. He also comes to dislike the school's potions master, Severus Snape, who is also the head of the Slytherin house and who acts with bias in favor of the members of his house. Malfoy tricks Harry and Ron into a duel in the trophy room to get them out of their rooms at night and secretly tells Filch, the school's caretaker, where they will be. Hermione unintentionally is forced to come along after her attempts to stop them fail. Harry, Ron, and Hermione find Neville asleep outside the common area because he has forgotten the password to get in. After realizing the duel was a setup to get them in trouble, they run away. They then discover a huge three-headed dog standing guard over a trapdoor in a forbidden corridor. The school year is interrupted by the entrance of a troll into the school, which enters the girls' bathrooms where Hermione was. However, she is saved by Harry and Ron, and as a result, Hermione is grateful and the three become best friends. Coupled with Snape's recent leg injury as well as his behavior, the recent events prompt Harry, Hermione, and Ron to suspect him to be looking for a way to enter the trapdoor. All right, so that's a lot of the intrigue of what's going on at the school itself, and we see our characters bonding here. So, I mean, the... Like we talked about before, the idea of being at the school was something that always really, really pulled me toward it, like really pulled me towards this book and made me want to be in this world. Um, But then we get into the adventures and that's really the that's like where the Gryffindor in me is always like, (laughs) I got to go on adventures. I got to do stuff. And um, right. That the, the adventures that they would go on and the ways like I talk, I was talking about before, they kind of are like these mysteries where it's like you're somebody's doing something and we have to figure out why. So it's like Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. There's a Sorcerer's Stone. Somebody wants it and they're doing things within the school. Uh, who's doing it? Chamber of Secrets. Same way. Somebody's opened the Chamber of Secrets. What's going on with that? Who's doing that and why? Um, right. So it feels like this like natural progression for us to like introduce the conflict and then we and then we go into how Harry, their kids, how these kids are going to solve this problem that adults should be handling. And uh, I always felt like that was such a, because like when, when kids are in over their head and you're a kid reading, you feel like you are. And it's just that the idea that like coming out the other side is like, I don't know, it it just, it, it, for me really made me feel like I could, I could do things that were beyond me as far as age was concerned. So for this part, there's a couple things I want to talk about. Um, one is the setup of having students share houses with teachers who are all trying to like compete for this winning of the cup 
thing throughout the year. I wonder, I mean, I bet there are things, I mean, it's a wide world. I bet there are places where this sort of thing happens in the school. But I wonder what you think of, like, how well would this actually work in real life if they were to do something like this? I think that the within the wizarding community in this world, I think that, like, the teachers hold themselves to a really high standard. So, like, they wouldn't get, it wouldn't get murky. Like, if somebody did something bad, they would get points taken away. Did something good, they would get points. But it seems like Snape is the, is, like, the you know, alternative to that. He's like playing favorites clearly. Um, but I also think that like as time goes on, the, the the teachers are less, it's seemingly less invested in the fact that their house is going to win the cup. Um, maybe it had something to do with the fact that Slytherin had won like six times in a row during this book. So like they, everybody wanted Slytherin to not win. So everybody's invested in like making sure somebody else wins. But yeah, I'm not really sure. It's like this merit system. Yeah, and it also creates a really intense competitive thing in the school, right? Where everybody's yeah. very tribal, and everybody's like, this is our house, and this is your house, and then we're all going to compete with each other. Um, and they do say that there are classes where, like, two different groups will be mixed together, but for the most part, you go to class with your house. Um, and then it also starts to feel like the instructors who are part of my house are on my team, and those who are not are, like, adversarial, yeah. um, especially with, with Slytherin. So it's interesting. Like, I, I don't know. I, you think I it's think like it, a commentary it, by JK about like tribe mentality? Maybe. But, 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 but because everybody loves going to school at Hogwarts um, and everybody's so bought into it and it seems to be such a pervasive thing through because it's not just Hogwarts, right? Like it's kind of like the larger society. Um, of the wizarding world, right? Like everybody seems to sort of identify with these houses. Um, yeah. Whether it's from their time in school or, or whatever, what have you, mm-hmm. um, it's I don't know. It's it's um, it creates a lot of drama. So I think narratively, it's a you know a brilliant move. I think we all love to you know have our allegiances, um, but in the real world, would it be a great thing to do in a school? I don't know. I'm not sure. What, the thing that really brings me back around is like the Quidditch. It's like almost like if you think of like a bunch of high schools in the same building all competing yeah. for their like their own football team or something. That's what Quidditch right. ultimately comes to, which is also something I wanted to say is that I feel like that was a way for, that was like an accessible way for JK to, to hit on a different, because I'm sure there are people who like Harry Potter a lot that could care less about the Quidditch stuff. And there's people yeah. who really responded to the Quidditch stuff that were like really into sports and that like pulled them in and they were like, wow, this is like kind of similar to something that I like. You're right. Yeah, it, do, it does appeal to a different sort of person, right, who is into more phys- more of the like physical fun stuff like that versus like re- learning and magic. And I don't know. Yeah, it's, it, there is something kind of there for everybody. I, I agree with that. Do you feel like Snape is justified do you i mean i know that you probably know most of the details and stuff but just like in terms of this first book do you think that snape is justified do you believe the things that dumbledore says at the end so i've i've forgotten a lot of what happens in the later novels and movies or Mm -hmm. well i haven't read the novels later movies so i will i will i will say that um so what i'm going off of is what i read here and that is that snape uh feels like he owes harry's grandparents and because of that was like seeking to protect him um, and and acting sort of in like fishy ways that that made them suspect him, the, you know, Hermione, Harry and, and, and Ron. So I don't know what you mean, I guess, by is he is he is he justified? So in his in the first book, it seems to me that like maybe it wasn't fully developed at this point, but like Snape being like Snape protecting 
Harry, but absolutely hating him through the whole book is like this, yeah. like really like it, it doesn't like match up for me. Like it doesn't, it doesn't, it's like if he wanted to protect this kid, wouldn't he be a little bit nicer? Like I understand that he hates his father, but, and, but feels like indebted to him. But at the same time, it, it always felt weird to me that he hated him so much. Like he was so yeah. after Harry. And I guess it, it leads into the mystery, right? It's like, that's like the red herring. It's like, you want to think that it's Snape. Well, and I do like, I mean, I guess it's somewhat of a spoiler, but my opinion of Snape changes over the course of the movies um, I, for, yeah. the more, for the more positive. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to say that that was a struggle I had rereading this novel um, and reading the novel for the first time. Because the more, as much as I knew about Snape, the mystery and the like kind of like bait and switch part of it felt almost like a chore for me. Like, I was like, all right, I got to read about why they suspect Snape again when I know it wasn't like he's not actually the one behind this stuff. Right. And so that was a struggle I had a little bit with it, with with engaging fully with the text. That's another thing that I think she does. I think the sequels really prop up a lot of this material. I think that the I, I love this first book. I think it's a great YA novel and I've reread it millions of times but I think that the sequels really elevate this stuff because of what she was able to build into this because the Snape stuff gets really murky for a little while you're like what it, is he isn't he what's going on like because we get a lot of his backstory and some of that, uh, that like his allegiances yeah we're talking about it in ways because we're trying not to spoil things so I think I think let's move on <laughs> Hermione makes Harry direct his attention to his first ever Quidditch game where his broomstick begins to lose control and threatens to throw him off this leads Hermione to suspect Snape is jinxing Harry's broom after the excitement of winning the match has died down Christmas approaches and Harry receives an invisibility clo- cloak from an anonymous source claiming that the cloak belonged to Harry's father. Using the cloak to explore the school at night to investigate the possibility of what is under the trapdoor, he discovers the mirror of Erised, in which the viewer sees his or her deepest desires come true. A visit to Hagrid's cottage at the foot of the school leads the trio to find a newspaper report stating that there has been an attempted robbery at Gringotts Vault, the same vault that Hagrid and Harry had visited when Harry was getting his school supplies. At fur- a further indiscretion from Hagrid allows them to work out that the object kept under the trapdoor is a Philosopher's Stone, or Sorcerer's Stone in America, <laughs> which grants its user immortality as well as the ability to turn any metal into pure gold. Harry is also informed by a centaur named Ferenz in the forest that a plot to steal the stone is being orchestrated by none other than Voldemort himself, who schemes to use it to be restored back to his body and return to power. Harry, Hermione, and Ron fear that the theft is imminent and descend through the trapdoor themselves. Okay, so let's stop there. Um, a good bit of plot is covered. Uh, we get this sort of uh, mystery of, of Snape being the one who's behind it all. We're introduced to a centaur. There's like stuff going on outside the school. And uh, Voldemort kind of makes his return here a little bit at least. So as far as this, cl- this cloak that he gets, the invisibility clock. <laughs> yeah. He, uh... I, I always thought that this was the coolest part. Uh, this is my favorite Harry Potter related thing was the fact that he could travel, like go around Hogwarts in, in the dead of night and explore all of these historic places and these secret passages and all the places that could be ever thought of in Hogwarts. Um, and the way that it's later used is just, I, I think that the invisibility cloak was was my was the part that made Harry Potter seem completely like blown wide open like you it could anything could happen now he can be invisible he can go anywhere 
Um, mm-hmm. And then later knowing that that like Dumbledore is watching him while he's using the mirror, while he's also invisible without one, and just knowing how powerful Dumbledore could be, I just I love that that like there's there's something that Harry has that basically helps him because he he's he's he knows nothing of this world and it's kind of his way of like using this cloak to be basically introduced to it and he can yeah. continually learn and kind of catch up with it and i don't know it just leads to a lot of great stuff in the in the novels yeah and it gets him in a lot of trouble in a lot of ways too <laughs> so yeah definitely cool um i i did like what you said about dumbledore and I, we haven't talked a l- at a, about him much at all but i do love that he's set up as this opposite to voldemort and how he is like the other wizard who is like so powerful that he's extremely respected and and everyone you know is like in awe of him basically and and we get that in the opening chapter right um and he's the one wizard who's willing to say Voldemort's name out loud and not say he who shall not be named and he thinks it's silly and all this stuff right mm-hmm. they make us think i mean he's the gandalf of this story right, right. and i wanted <laughs> to is... say i was i was getting ready to say that so he's gandalf um, and again, I love the way that, that J.K. Rowling kind of subverts that at some point. And like he he can do no wrong. He knows everything that's going to happen. He literally leaves the school and when and when he's most needed, comes back just because he felt like he should come back. He knew that something was going on. And yeah. uh, but at the end of the day, Dumbledore doesn't know everything and he might not. And it's also interesting that Harry asks nearing the end, he asks kind of why Voldemort was after him. And Dumbledore says, we'll tell you when you're older kind of thing. And, and uh, yeah. I think that that like setting up Dumbledore to be this like this like peak of wizarding level human, and then also kind of like um, humanizing him as we go is is a great thing. But in this book, he's infallible. It's it's amazing. Like he's just like the coolest fantasy character. <laughs> he's Gandalf, um, <laughs> uh, which which it's going to be fun to read because we've 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 covered Fellowship of the Ring and. Uh, we're going, but we haven't covered Two Towers yet. We haven't covered Return of the King yet. So it'll be interesting to kind of do both of these and, and, and track these major wizards and any other wizards we might we might cover for other fantasy series, right? And and, and they're, they're very archetypal mm-hmm. and see how each author handles them. So they encounter a series of obstacles, each of which requires unique skills possessed by one of the three, one of which requires Ron to sacrifice himself in the life-size game of Wizard's Chess. In the final room, Harry, now alone, finds Quirinus Quirrell, the defense against the dark arts teacher, who had been the one working behind the scenes to kill Harry by first jinxing his broom and then letting a troll into the school. Snape had been trying to protect Harry instead. Now, Quirrell is partly possessed by Voldemort, whose face has sprouted from the back of Quirrell's head, but is constantly concealed by his oversized turban. Voldemort needs Harry's help to get past the final obstacle, the Mirror of Erised, forcing him to stand before the mirror. It recognizes Harry's lack of greed and the stone deposits into his pocket. As Quirrell attempts to seize the stone and kill Harry, his flesh burns on contact with the boy's skin and breaks into blisters. Harry's scar suddenly burns with pain and he passes into unconsciousness. Three days later, he awakens in the school's infirmary where Dumbledore explains his survival against Voldemort and is owed to his mother sacrificing her life in order for him to live, leaving a powerful protective charm on Harry that lives in his blood burning Quirrell, who was possessed by hatred and greed. He also reveals himself as the one who sent Harry his father's invisibility cloak, while Quirrell has been left to die by Voldemort, and the stone is now destroyed. The school year ends at the final feast, during which Gryffindor wins the House Cup, and Harry returns to Privet Drive for the summer. So, 
Uh, I mean, just Harry, the way that the, that it's like this, there's not a battle at the end, right? Harry wins by being, by outsmarting, but also maybe being like positioned by Dumbledore to yeah. know how to get the stone and the fact that he- Well, just the, this, this to get previous it. skin enchantment that we didn't know about. Right. I mean, it's, it, it makes for like a lot of, uh, like, I think that the love, the love, it, although maybe being a little- uh, a little on the nose is is uh, in this. It's always been like really emotional to me because I, um, one, I probably have a lot of nostalgia for it, and I read it when I was young. But like the idea that like there is this like pa- this magic that everybody's using, and then people can manipulate it. But there's also like these unspoken rules of magic, and like these kinds of things that that are like ancient, like time, like love is is going to protect this chi- like a mother's love can protect a child even after she's yeah. gone. Is like and I, knowing I think what it's we great. know about. About Rowling's own mother dying, um, yeah. I think it makes sense that that got into her fiction. In yeah, that way. and I love that. I, I always thought that that was really powerful. Yeah. So w- I was going to ask you before, what did you think about the way that each character kind of gets their moment? But Hermione, like we can clearly see, Hermione is going to be just like this legend. Like she's going to be either the smartest witch to ever live, or like the most powerful, or something, because she's like she she everything that she's learned, she's learned in a finite amount of time, and yeah. and she's like they wouldn't have gotten through most of the trials without her. And yeah. uh, we continue to see that throughout the series. It's just like, yeah. And I, and I love the way she just like, no problem. This is just a logic puzzle. Everything I need to know is right here. Boom. Figured it out with the potions. Every, every uh, sort of, te- this is a very like D and D type ending for me too, with the, with the series of tests in the dungeon, basically. Um, it's very classic fantasy. So she, she, she really is just hitting on like all of these major like tropes, but also like what people like about them. Um, Christmas, I thought it was interesting that they, they they spend Christmas in Hogwarts as well, because to me, this novel feels Christmassy in the sense that um, Christmas, for me at least, as someone who really likes likes Christmas, is it always reminds me of home. It always reminds me of um, good times and 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 warmth and and there's sort of a magic to the season, you know. And it sounds silly, but I I feel that way. And I think this book, like a lot of those same feelings that I get around Christmas time, is what I get reading this. I absolutely agree with you. Yeah, I feel like this. This, if you, if I was gonna say that a book felt like home, this is it for me. Like it, like you right. said, and like, but and, and what you also touched on, like the idea of the season and the way that they, it, it's it's so interesting because this, I feel like Harry Potter is somewhat seen, and a lot of the movies are somewhat seen as like Christmas movies because Christmas ends up being a big part of some of them because it's like people are going home, people are staying. Um, and then, like, it's like when there's less people in the school, like the, the our trio is willing, more willing to do certain things for their research towards right. whatever's going on. And and yeah, I don't know. And it's funny that it, like Harry Potter is now like shown in like marathons around Christmas time and the holidays and stuff. And it's like you're right; it has become almost a Christmas movie. Yeah, but yeah, that's interesting. So I I definitely want to talk about the ending with with Dumbledore. Uh, talking to Harry about the future and setting up sequels and and all of the things to come. It did feel, I will say, it felt a little anticlimactic to have Harry not, like, yeah, he he did best Quirrell mm-hmm. in, in some fashion, but a lot of it felt like it was outside of his control. You know, like he he was he was he was more of a pawn in in Dumbledore's game. Right. In that oh sense. oh, and like that definitely becomes a a major a major point. 
But I think that a lot of people point out Harry as kind of always just, and I think it's even maybe even lampshaded and like addressed in the books that he kind of just like always luckily makes it out by the skin of his teeth and like figures it out. Yeah. And like, it's like, it's like this weird thing. And, and like, there's, there's things around that potentially um, feel like, you know, unseen hands guiding fate and, and like Dumbledore positioning Harry into certain things. But um, I definitely feel like in this one, for sure, that's definitely, I can see that point being like, he he didn't do anything if you know what i mean he he just happened to be there and then they made the mistake yeah. of touching him and then he kind of used that against them but the only reason he got the stone is because dumbledore cast the spell in such a fashion that would work for him to get the stone right right like and, and it's like it's funny because it. it's like is is it like is it dumbledore being like just like nonchalantly putting a child up against this evil wit wizard or is it is it like this this idea that harry like needs to go through these steps before he can actually fight him or is it like Harry deserves some sort of revenge or some sort of like I don't know there's a lot to be said for Dumbledore's plan going forward like what's what's going on here and the, and also the fact that he Harry asks specifically like I want the details and and Dumbledore's like that's sorry the first question you asked me is something that I can't tell you till you're older yeah so. well there's so much that's getting set up for the later series here yeah. um well, so about this about this uh the house cup at the end Slytherin's yeah. one, and then Dumbledore comes in and basically like wipes that away and says like a million points to Gryffindor and Gryffindor is the best <laughs> and they win. And I think that's why yeah. I get called a fuckboy because Dumbledore <laughs> had to play favorites and give him the house cup. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, it is. I mean, but they did they did courageous things, and we've seen we've seen these points get handed out for weird bizarre reasons and taken yeah. away for for questionable reasons and well it's just funny um, that there's even a moment yeah. at the end of the book where it's like they all like 50 points 50 points 50 points are awarded and then harry has a moment where he's like if only one more point had been awarded and it's like neville gets five points as well and or 10 points or whatever he gets and points, yeah. just like of course yeah i did i i will say i like uh book neville way more than i like uh movie neville going really? forward that's true as well Okay, I'll be interested to track that because I've only read the next book and then I haven't read any more of them. So I'm going to be really curious when I get to when we get to the point where yeah. I'm reading fresh. I just I, I love Neville's arc and yeah, Neville the Neville story is something that I was always super invested in. Cool. All right, man. Well, I think we should save some of this for the movie episode. We are going to watch the movie and react to it and talk about its history and its uh, creation in our in our very next episode. So at the very end of the episode, we're going to reveal what our next project is going to be after we finish Harry Potter. Um, but so stick around so you can hear that. Yeah. So this week we want to thank one of our patrons, Myla J. Thank you again for being a patron and supporting this podcast. Uh, you're one of the reasons why we're still continuing on right now. Yeah. Thank you to Myla and thank you to all of our patrons. Honestly, you guys have been great. You really came through for this podcast when we didn't know we were going to be able to continue to do it. But um, the reason we're still going is because of your continued uh, support. So yeah, if you want to find out how to support us, go to patreon.com forward slash ink to film. Uh, another way to support us that doesn't require any money at all is leaving us a rating and a review, uh, which would be awesome, uh, especially on iTunes, in which we're getting very, very close. I think we're at 49 out of 50, unless we've gotten it today. Um, come be that magical 50th review and get us over the hump. Um, it would be amazing. Also, if you wanted to connect with us, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all of those at ink to film And also, we have a Facebook group called the Council of Inklings that we encourage you to join. Uh, we have a lot of discussion there about anything ink or film related we we kind of post a lot of like up and coming projects and questions and polls things like that yeah that's been a really happening spot for us definitely come check that out 
And if you wanted to reach out to us otherwise, you can always send us a email at inktofilm at gmail.com or through our website, inktofilm.com. And uh, we also have our jukebox directory on there, and you can see like projects that people may be putting tokens towards and, and stuff that might be coming in the future. Also, thank you to Goblins from Mars and Empire Sounds for the use of our intro and outro music. Which was a lot of fun, I gotta say. A lot of fun this week. <laughs> so you, I look yeah, forward to hearing more of that. Yep. All right, so for now we're at the end. We're going to reveal our next project. We are going to do, drum roll, <laughs> The Godfather, which if you're like me, you might not have seen. Somehow I missed that. Um, but it is an iconic film and it's an iconic series. I didn't even know it was based off of a book. It's one of those like Die Hard and some of these other ones we've covered where I didn't even know it was a book. Um, but I'm actually really excited to read it. Uh, so we're going we're gonna to be hitting that. Uh, following the next episode. So next episode is still Harry Potter. It's Harry Potter movie. But then right after that, we're starting Godfather. If you guys wanted to get a head start on reading along with us, uh, go ahead and do that. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to reading that. Uh, never read it before, but the I mean, the movies are legendary. I'm sure everyone knows. And they, they definitely live up to that hype. So I'm really excited to jump into those. Me too, man. All right. And uh, until next time. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.